0: I recognize that art is a force that can be directed towards anything, and that it wasn't what it looked like, but what it was doing.
1: You are listening to Change Lab Conversations on Transformation and Creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, President of Art Center College of Design. Edgar Arsenault is a Los Angeles based contemporary artist and Art Center alum whose celebrated body of work investigates penetrating questions of cultural and historical significance. His recent and much lauded project, Until Until Until, is a compelling live performance centered around the reenactment of Ben Vereen's tragically misunderstood blackface performance at Ronald Reagan's 1981 inaugural gala. Edgar is co-founder of the Watts House Project, an artist-driven neighborhood redevelopment venture in South LA. His work has been widely exhibited internationally with shows at such venues as the Hammer Museum, the Whitney Biennial, MoCA, and the Pompidou in Paris. I sat down to talk with Edgar, meaningfully named after his artist grandfather, about his work and about how his sensitive and observant nature, his penchant for critical thinking, His family history and childhood circumstances were all crucial factors in his development as an artist. His striking wisdom and his courage with experimentation create a compelling picture of an artist who, in his words, endeavors to find the awe and mystery of life with others. Welcome and thank you so much for doing this. It's it's just it's it's delightful, and it was uh, um, it was a very energizing for me to uh, just sit and think about your work and hmm. yeah. read and and just contemplate it for a while. So I'm I'm feeling uh, I'm I'm feeling re- really good about that. I think um, I, I often, though not always, start um, these these conversations with asking about your childhood. Hmm. And I'm interested in a couple of things. I'm interested in just getting a context and a sense of that, but I'm particularly curious about who you were as a creative individual as a child, how you Mm. remember that or recognize that. Mm. Um, The, the memory I, of your grandfather you know, moving to Los Angeles in 1923 is a pretty interesting moment for you. I think that has a level of resonance yeah. if you want to go there, but yeah. I would just like you to talk to us a little bit about that and about who, who Edgar was
0: as a That child. story. Yeah. Um, well, it's a, it's a kind of a peculiar, um, beginnings, at least in relationship to, to my name. Um, because, you know, being named after a person who recently died, um, you know, it has some, you know, it opens up certain windows in your mind mm-hmm. in retrospect, not as a not as a young person necessarily, but in retrospect of the significance of a name and sort of how they may open certain paths to you to follow and may preclude you from other things. And who were you named for? Um, my grandfather, who was the painter. Yeah, he was a painter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his name is Edgar Young, and he was also an inventor too. But I had, um, I had come to know him because my parents would speak, you know, about him a lot, and you know, my mother still talks about my about my grandfather um, often. Um, you know, she. Says, you know, he still visits her every once in a while and her, uh, him and my my grandmother and neither one of them I met. So, you know, to some degree, you know, he's as much a part of me um, as uh, as my parents, just because, you know, I I found myself sort of traveling along similar paths that he did, even though I never knew him. So he was an artist. He was a painter. Um, you know, a family man, um, you know, made roots here in LA and, you know, I've, I've, I've done the same thing. So, you know, when I started drawing, when I was really young, you know, it was just little, little things like, um, you know, Hey mom, look, I could draw the Care Bears and make them look like the Care Bears. You know, we would, you know, I didn't have like big pieces of paper. So what I would do is take the, like a supermarket shopping bag and, you know, brown paper bag and cut that open. And then I would have a piece of paper that would be twice the size or three times the size as notebook paper. And, you know, and that would allow me to, to make things bigger. And, you know, and at that time it was like, Hey, look at what I can do. But, um, but it was also like a way for me to establish a sense of identity um, that was distinctive from my five brothers and sisters uh, as well. But I was also, you know, a kind of a strange kid. You know, my, my aunt used to call me the professor because I'd always want to have conversations with her about big ideas, according to her. Um,
1: and so did the, 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 I mean, initial stages of the drawing and and uh, wanting to, hey, look what I did. And, and then how did it evolve for you? Where, where did it go?
0: Well, I think when we left L.A., um, in '84, we moved out of Los Angeles because we lived in South Central LA. We lived off of um, off of 70th and, and and Van Ness, kind of not too far from the intersection of of uh, of Florence and Western. We we lived in that in that vicinity, right, right in right on the edge of Inglewood. And um, when we moved from LA to West Covina, um, and I started school there. Um, there was some encouragement to take art, but not not a lot. So I continued doing it on my own, you know, I used to make my own comic books and things like that. Um, would
1: it would be a pastime for you, which you just when you're hanging out. I mean, you know, like art center, center students and, and alum, you know, especially the car guys, they say, you know, from the minute I could pick up a, a pencil, since I was three years old, I've been drawing cards. This, this is compulsion to do this kind of work, you know? Uh,
0: I wouldn't say that it was a compulsion necessarily, but it was. Something that I enjoyed doing and, you know, it was a way to tell a story, but, you know, it was always like also people, if they knew you could draw, then they would ask you to draw stuff for them. So then that was also that aspect of it. But it wasn't until I got into high school, I actually was able to take art classes. Um, And then that's where things really started to open up where I could be part of a community. Um, I had some really great teachers at West Covina high In junior high, there was no art classes. So I just sort of had to do it on my own. And I was just like, just hungry. I was like, man, when can I take an art class? And then once I got into high school, then, um, then things really opened up. And then I also did the California state summer school, of the arts program, um, in 89, um, a year before I was between my junior and senior year, um, up at Cal arts and, that was also, you know, a life altering experience. Um, it's like, you know, the TV show fame, but I was like, I was in the school.
1: What, you know? what do you remember learning in those early classes when you talk about these, <sighs> these good teachers that you had in high school are, or...
0: um, techniques like, hmm. uh, you know, things that you never heard of, like you can stretch a piece of paper, for example, um, you know, using watercolors and pencils, um, you know, being able to paint with brushes on a canvas, on an easel, like, you know, things that you um, think that artists are supposed to do and then you get the opportunity to do it. But I think what what it was more importantly was that it was consistent and it was every day. So I had art class every day and also I had wood shop every day and then I had arts and crafts. And I remember foolishly sitting in, in my – because then I, when I was in AP art looking across the hall at people who were taking typing and being like, look at those idiots. Like, why are they learning how to type? (laughs) You know, have no idea that the the internet was around the corner. So now I type with like two fingers. I'm pretty fast, but um, I'd probably be a better writer if I did take those classes. Um, do you think the seeds were planted in
1: those days too for you, just who you are as a as a, a, a you know a seeker and a questioner and an artist? That uh, the spirit of your work, and, and do you find do you have any kind of echo or memory of that that younger Edgar's kind of way I, of being creative and asking questions?
0: I, I I do, and I I remember, you know, in high school and in junior high, when you start thinking about metaphysical things. Like, you know, I was raised Catholic, so um the your relationship between your desire for who you want to be, your your spiritual aspirations, and then that icky place in between your ideals and then what you feel like you're actually able to do, you know, what what the the you know what Catholics call that space of sin. Um, You know, I I I started to wonder about like how the world actually works. So for example, like I remember I was in the, I think it was in the first or the second grade and I was on the playground and I started thinking about a photograph of my, uh, of my, my grandmother, my grandfather and a bunch of my relatives whom I maybe had met a few times and it was in black and white. And then thinking to myself, Oh, well, the past is in black and white. Right. And then looking around the the playground I was like, "Well, wait a minute. So when did color come from?" And like and when when was this monumental event and why did I never hear about it? Right? This invention of color. Um and then it sort of like dawned on me that there were you know these different layers to reality and that it wasn't necessarily linear, right? Um and that there was these kind of these conundrums that that left you feeling a sense of like of awe, right? Um, but you know, when you're a kid, you don't really think about it that way. You're just kinda like you can mean maybe you get a little scared or you find it exciting. So like I'm an idea guy. Like I find big ideas, small ideas, um, questions that perhaps don't have answers. Like, you know, I'm 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 generally drawn towards 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 those the things. Big questions, yeah yeah, yeah and sometimes questions that seem really inconsequential can be bloated with um with wisdom you know right that story um of you looking around the
1: playground and um w- wondering when when color was invented is uh, I mean, for me, as somebody who has a sense of your work, that resonates a lot. Mm. I mean, it resonates a lot in terms of how you're trying to stitch time together. It mm. resonates a lot in terms of what the perspective of the moment was. It wasn't. Why wasn't there color in the photographs? It, it was color
0: must have come after the past, right? <laughs> yeah, but you know, you don't really know how to. You how don't to really have an it, yeah. answer, but yeah. you just you have a better sense. You have a better sense of the of the question. So uh,
1: what I what I'm I'm going to offer you here is just my sense of some of the questions that seem to be living in you, and they're very much um, my response. Um, so I I don't um, uh, claim anything except that here's one man's re- re- reaction, and nice, I'd like to offer it to this you as your disclaimer and, and before see, you get started. And, yeah. <laughs> I offer it to you and see again the, how you react to it, and, okay. and, and there are three really okay. that, that that kind of fascinate me. One is um, again all surrounded around questions. I don't I don't I, I see you guys I see you as working on these questions. Mm. Uh, the 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 one being on memory and reflection, um, shadow and a playing with time mm. that fascinates you. Mm. The second being and you've even alluded to it already, the the issue of human struggle and its relationship to the physical world and to space. And the mm. third being questions about um, struggles for identity amidst that kind of sense of uh, physical world of space and time. And meaning the third kind of reacts back to the, to the first two mm. uh, open that up and, is, 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 does that resonate with you? Do you, uh, can you play with that? Does that limit it too much? Does it,
0: or is it too, too open and vague? No, it's, it's not, um, too open, but it is, uh, just to go back to this thing of being a child and as a, as a way of, um, exploring some of the things that you just said. So, you know, when you're a kid, your parents say things to you or other people say things to you that you just kind of brush off. It's like, Oh, whatever, you know? Um, and when you get older and then you have your own kids and you find yourself repeating things that you never thought that you would say, I've never done that. You've never done that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, because as a kid, you, you, you think for whatever reason, your, your parents don't know what they're talking about. Um, but somehow you register it as a cliche of some sort, like, oh, you know, the world is not like that. Um, so then you start to wonder, well, how far back does that go? If I said something that my father said to me, did his mother say that? And did her mother say that? And did the great, 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 great grandparents, does that go back a thousand years? And, what you recognize in the, in the instance of it dawning on you that what they said that there was some truth to it is that behind cliches, oftentimes what seems flat and without dimension through just being at the point where you can actually see it. You realize that it's really deep that, you know, what, what one philosopher's name, I can't recall at the moment, said is sort of is, is bloated with wisdom which is obscured by the lack of experience. So in that instance of, you know, dawning on you that when your mother said, don't do that because of this, then it opens up a sort of a much larger sense of where you sit in the world. And and you can start to see yourself as being part of a larger continuum. Right. So, there's different ways in which you can go with that realization within a project. So there's a, a socio political dimension to that. If you're working in neighborhood redevelopment work in, you know, a historically marginalized community, like in Watts and you say, well, why does this neighborhood look the way in which it does when you can drive 10 minutes in this direction and in a, and in a, in a, in a a very similar neighborhood have all these different resources. Like what, what is it that created these conditions? And, and then when you think about that echo of time, you, you recognize that the conditions in which you're existing in currently were produced by decisions that were made 50 years ago. Right. But it's been obscured by time. Right. Um, In a project like um, the one that I did around Martin Luther King that's called A Book and a Medal, um, there were two letters that the show was, was based on. One of them is called The Suicide Letter. is commonly known as the letter that the FBI sent to Martin Luther trying King. Trying to saying, blackmail him. To blackmail right. him, right, say, we right. know your secrets, You should just commit suicide. Right. 50 years later, another letter is released to the public from Martin Luther King's daughter, Bernice King saying that her two brothers lester and martin luther king the ironically are suing her because they want to sell the nobel peace prize and the bible to a private collector hmm. now in that instance you have struggle that's happening on three scales one on the level of the individual because the fbi wanted to blackmail martin luther king around his extramarital affairs then you have a struggle on the level of the family body between the siblings That are fighting over these relics. And then you have on a third level, which is the struggle on the family body or the society as a whole, on the social body, I'm sorry, on society as a whole. So if you think about these things as windows into the other, then you can see the way in which a shadow in the show, the use of shadow in a show like that, is about trying to represent something that you can sense, that you can feel, but that you can't see. Right, right. So you then, 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 as a as a visual artist, you have to figure out like what are the, what are the formal and material strategies that you have to use to manifest an idea, which essentially you can't actually represent.
1: And is your interest in letting that resonate that piece of shadow, that contemporary moment, the moment of us watching the past or understanding it, the resonance of the experience of how time operates in us
0: in its kind of sometimes very direct and sometimes very vague ways are you lauren you're you run an institution and you can you know i'm certain at some point you've recognized that the health of your organization operates like an organism like a living thing it gets sick it needs food it grows, it gets you know. I mean, all the different things that is the there's the the qualities of a child becoming an adult, mm-hmm. right? Now, um, you could say, well, that's just a matter of coincidence, or you can say there are some shared attributes that exist across these different scales that helps us to better understand one to understand the other, right? Um, and like, fundamentally what I, what I try to do in my work, because this is just how I see things in the world is to make people feel connected to the moment that they're in, but that they somehow have a sense of the archetypal past as well. Right. Like we all fall in love if we're lucky, you know, we trip and we fall, we get up, we get sick. You know, we're happy, we smile, we laugh, we die. I mean, that's the, that's the, you know, the, the archetype of just being a person. So we build institutions that help to institute some of those experiences. And, you know, those things reflect the individual. For example, for the sake of, I feel like I'm talking for too long, but like, if you're driving down the freeway and I oftentimes I, exp- I experience this, I think I'm seeing like a a dead animal on the side of the road and it's a mound of clothes. And, and it always strikes me it was like somebody wore those at some point and it still reminds me of that person, but it's just a, a, a fragment of of a whole.
1: Yeah, and I get I I completely get the idea and it's inc- it's really compelling. What I'm I want to kind of push here is what's what's your What's your job then as an artist? What's your job as Edgar? What do you do with all of that? What's your, are, well, are, you, are you opening it up for us? And, you know, well, again, and you're playing with these ideas of memory and of human struggle and of identity. And
0: as, a, as a professor, you know, what I, what I try to tell my students is that you're, if we understand why you're excited about this, then we're more inclined to be excited about it too, right? So I try to give people a sense of the awe and the mystery that I feel in the experience of, of making the connections that I make when I'm in the process of this messy struggle of trying to make sense of things that might consider disparate or unrelated to other people. Um, so for one, I want them to, 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 I want to put them in my shoes. And secondly, um, hopefully I'm offering them a metaphor, a tool, a lens for them to then take with them to, a mad to you know, to to think about their connection, their relationship to their own personal history, you know, mm-hmm. to raise the history of their community or their city or their country. Mm-hmm. Um, and not to feel so separated, but that's sort of a deeper sense of connection, mm-hmm. however fleeting that may be.
1: So let's um, maybe, maybe ground it in some particular projects of yours. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, uh, I'd, you know, I'd like to talk to start with the, um, with the Watts house project. And mm-hmm. if you, if you could just for, for people listening, give them a sense of, uh, you know, a quick is. summary of a what cr- it is. Yeah. And I'll so, so, yeah.
0: Watts house project is a, well, there's two descriptions. One was a description when it was an art project. And then one is a description when we became an organization and you know? all try to articulate a little bit later why that distinction is important so when we were just an art project we called it an ongoing um neighborhood no no we called it an artist no no, no what are, oh god we called it an ongoing collaborative artwork in the shape of a neighborhood redevelopment so artists architects families work together to bring about improvements to their homes we were we were based in the neighborhood that's right across the street from the Watchtowers, towers um which is a um Incredible, a small community in south thing. Southeast LA. <laughs> right, right. Uh, the Watts Towers were built by an Italian immigrant by the name of Simon Rodia. He built them for 33 years in his backyard. Very similar to my grandfather, you know, self-taught. Um, he never, you know, he only graduated from the, you know, I think he had maybe a fifth grade education. And, um, you know, he built what, in my opinion, and in many others, is one of the most important spectacular. sculptural Absolutely. works in the 20th Absolutely century. So you know when we were in that neighborhood you know it it uh, you know we recognized that the resources that were going into that place were directed primarily towards the the city side of the street which is you know owned by the city of la the park and everything but what makes the watchtower special is that it's surrounded by homes and that people are you know 20 feet away from them on a daily basis so why aren't those resources being directed towards the families um right. so as an artist which i which by the way you know i started on that project when i was still a student here uh, at yeah. art center yeah, yeah. um my very first meeting with the with the founder of the art project, his name is Rick Lowe, was in the cafeteria of Art Center. He he's the guy from Houston, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. And um I met him at John Outerbridge's studio, whom I had met because um John O'Brien, who was a professor here at the time, had told me about him and Eugenia Butler and a couple of other people. So I was at his studio and I met Rick there. And um he was said to me, you know, uh, I'm working on this project. I'm looking for people to be involved. And I said, I would love to be involved, but I was still, you know, I'm fresh off the boat. I'm not even out of school. I don't (laughs) know anything about working in, um, in, in neighborhood based work, but, um, you know, I wanted to be involved somehow. I wanted to be a part of something that could help to make, you know, LA a better place, you know, Still in my mind, you know, the 92 uprising is still just fresh in my head. You know, I was, you know, I just graduated in, uh, in 96. So, you know, I'm like, Hey, what can I do? Right. So this was an opportunity. I wound up taking it over in 99. Um, so that was a longer description than what you wanted, but.
1: Right, and so um, the it wasn't longer than I I mean I I just wanted to contextualize what 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 it was that that, that you were doing okay and so you were, you were bringing these various pieces together you've mm-hmm. spoken about the echoes of, of the in the and the and the shadows and the history yeah. and the memory of that yeah. time and yeah. and what you're doing now and in fact I think I I read somewhere that you actually uncovered all these objects at on some, one of the properties right you were able to like the relic the, talk about relics of the past I mean yeah they're, they're, there they were that you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that was that was a little bit of a fiction. Um, I there was a Mrs. Pachado who lived on the corner. She was the only she's the only remaining resident, though she just passed away not too long ago. Um, she knew Simon Rodia. She's the last remaining person on the block who was there when he was building the towers. Mm. And she had this this really beautiful practice of like collecting dolls when she would go on her walks every morning and then putting them in her garden. So when I was, when we were part of this exhibition at MoCA, which is where Watts House Project was founded, um, Tom Finkel-Pearl and Julie Lazar were the curators at MoCA. Julie Lazar, Tom was a guest curator and the show was called Uncommon Sense. So right out of Art Center, blew my mind, you know, I'm in a show at MoCA three months later Mm -hmm. and I decided to bring Miss Pachado's stuff into the museum Uh and then made a story saying that there was like some ritual and stuff. Anyway, it was all totally a lie, but um, it, was a, it was a story. You know I mean? it. it wasn't a lie. It was a story. It was yeah. intended as yeah. a story. Yeah. Um, but they were real. Yeah. They were real artifacts.
1: Yeah. Um, but clearly the spirit of what you were doing was very much along the lines of what we've been talking about, right?
0: So the big question is, what, what did you learn from the Watts House Project? Oh, boy. I mean, there's still stuff that I am learning um, from it uh, today. So like on the level of politics, right, like when you're in school, you read a lot about you know capitalism and communism, and you read about the the history. You know from Ronald Reagan, the Vietnam War, and so you know as you're becoming politically aware, you understand these things on a much larger kind of global scale. But what what working down in Watts allowed me to do is to understand things in a in a in an even more meaningful way because you can see how they operate on the local scale. So it was like it was the first time that I actually experienced political theater, like the people who meet at these community meetings are the most vocal, mm-hmm. the ones that stand up and then the most like mm-hmm. outraged by the conditions in which they in, And then afterwards, everything that they do is all about centrally controlling everything. Right. So then I, what I recognize about that was that they didn't actually believe in the community itself. They didn't think that having other people, a broad group of various interests could actually result in a better place. So they decided they were going to control it themselves, but then present it as coming from the space I of see, the community. Right? See, yeah. And, you know, and, and that helped me to understand politics in general. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm meeting, I'm meeting you know city councilman i'm reading assemblyman you know you meet all these different people and you you just like oh okay you're trying to navigate
1: you know it's interesting by the way that you um use the word political theater because i i am um, found in in my own sort of notes about um, thinking about your work too, uh, you know. I'm a theater guy. I don't know if you know that. So
0: no, that's right, There yeah. were
1: there were uh, echoes to me of Beckett in terms of the way in which you were Beckett a theater plays director. with. Did you yeah, also yeah. direct plays? Did and I you... directed plays. Yeah. yeah okay, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And and uh, so that that you know, that's sort of the context out of which I was I was also experiencing right. work because I find your work th- theatrical in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And I, but specifically, there is a political theater. There's a Brechtian kind of quality to the stuff that you're mm-hmm. making. So mm-hmm. that was an interesting way. There's a Beckett piece to it too for me, though. I see Beckett in just about everything in the world, but in, in your in your case, it was you know the the, the echo of time and memory, and, right. the, and this and the self struggling with trying to make sense of what that memory is. Sometimes feeling alienated, sometimes just trying to connect to it to understand what 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 that what that moment is about. And the third one is is uh, Artaud's theater of cruelty. I don't know if you know anything about that, but it's a this kind of very strong kind of uh, uh, it's a it's the theater that wakes you up nerves and heart to to see something. Mm-hmm. And in, and in, in, in to assault the senses with mm. it in a certain kind of way. So right. there were these kind of wonderful theatrical echoes, and I, I thought at some point, probably too long a conversation for a podcast that you and I could talk about. You know, theater. That'll, in your that'll be part yeah.
0: two over drinks when there's no microphones. Indeed. Yeah. 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 <laughs> in the roof. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, you know the theater. Part of it, at least the political part. Well, anyway, I, I just went straight to the negative. But let me just say something positive about it as well, is that I it helped me, it helped to free myself from certain constraints of what I thought that art could be, um, in, the, in the most powerful sense of the term, which is that I recognize that art is a force that can be directed towards anything, um, and that it wasn't what it looked like, but what it was doing. Right. Um, that could be a driveway that could be a fence, you know, that could be the way in which you design an organization. Hmm. Right. Um, it doesn't, it's not like what the, uh, it's not about an object, but recognizing that the object becomes a, I don't know, like it, it's, it's a stand in, it becomes a relic of an activity, right? Like, so every time we redid a house, we re- repainted a house, it wasn't because we wanted to stand back and say now this is a work of art we wanted the completion of that one to trigger us being able to do it again that will enable us to do it one more time so it anticipated a future and it, it excited it people the past. that's right and you could point at it and say look at what we did wouldn't you love to be involved with this mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. next time we do it mm-hmm. right uh and that was freeing so like you know me working in theater has allowed me to create a you know a relationship with an incredible group of collaborators towards a shared a shared purpose and a common goal and it seems relevant to say putting that
1: um if we continue this the theatrical moment in a different context it doesn't always have to be on a proscenium stage in what we call a theater it can be on the street it can be you know in a in a neighborhood it can be in the context of those remarkable towers right that's right yeah, yeah. that's right and that's right. and and all the resonance that comes from
0: freeing that up and I think you know great art sees is able to get you to it always allows you to see things on 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 different scales at different points in your life you come back to it again and you go, you know I thought I knew what that was about right right. And then it, it has something else to tell you, or it, it completely contradicts mm. what you thought it was. I agree. I agree. So let's go to until until until. And
1: um, uh, uh, well, before I jump in, maybe again
0: context. Just of, describe the project of, of yeah, this, please yeah. yeah. So until 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 is um, is based on a performance that the actor Ben Vereen did in 1981. Um, where he did a tribute to the vaudevillian performer, Bird Williams, um, at Ronald Reagan's inaugural gala, um, which he did in, uh, in Blackface, um, which is controversial in its own right. But um, the performance existed in two acts. And uh, what Ben Vereen didn't know was that the second act, which is the part that contained the critique, um, that ABC television was going to edit that out, so that American audiences back home, who had known Ben Vereen as a, you know, he was the guy from Roots. He was checking George and Roots. You know, he was Ben Vereen who'd won a, a Tony on uh, Broadway exactly. and, uh, and Pippin. Um, he was a he was a huge star. All they saw was him doing a pretty true to form minstrel show for Ronald Reagan, Nancy Bush, George Bush, and like twenty five thousand white Republicans. So the very community that he went to to represent the injustice of it all. Um, were the people that turned on him the most, and he never really had the opportunity to tell his side of the story. So the the play offered me the opportunity to to show that full ten minute performance. And
1: and by the way, the the, the song that Ben Vereen sings at the inaugural, the first piece that they did televise was mm. "Waiting for the Robert E. Lee." Uh huh. Yeah.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. So the Robert E. Lee is the song, but the piece is called uh, "Nobody," that I'll um, mis sung in the beginning, um, and that's a uh, Burton Williams. So,
1: right, the Burt Williams song, and he then sings, and he, he sings, sings. He sings and nobody. Sings Robert the, Lee,
0: yeah. Oh, so he sings nobody first. Mm-hmm. Well, no, he does the play. He does it as a poem, and then he then he sings a portion of it. And, and what part? So, just to be, get clear here, what part was actually aired
1: on on TV? What What did the, the, uh, the part that television was audience that, he, see?
0: that that American audiences saw was him entering the stage, kind of, you know, walking like you know kind of leaned back and, you know, and then, you know, him addressing the audience as Burt Williams and then doing a minstrel show, right. you know, singing and dancing and dancing. in like in the most incredible, <laughs> I mean, like Ben Vereen is, you know, there's not anybody else like him. And, you know, for, for people who are listening to the podcast who don't know who Ben Vereen is, look him up. But, you know, I, I described to young people, he's like, you know, um, Denzel Washington meets Hugh Jackman. Not like the Wolverine Hugh Jackman, but like the Broadway sure. high kicking and dancing Hugh right, Jackman, you right, know. Right. Um, so here again, I get interested in layers. I get interested in
1: layers of time mm-hmm. of this moment. In well, it's 2017. You did this in 2015, but it's you're still doing it, right? I mean, yeah. it's yeah, we're going to San Francisco now. next. Yeah, I think. Yep. Yeah. Um, so uh, 2017 um, uh, layered into 1981 layered into the teens or 20s, maybe. Yeah, like 1910.
0: Or earlier, right? Yeah, right. 1890s. Yeah, ninety Yeah, early end of end of the 20th. Well, not just minstrel, but I'm thinking about Bert century, Williams. Yeah. His his years were what? 18 Turn of the late. Century, yeah, right? 1890s. Okay, 1910, 1920, yeah. Okay,
1: right. So, um, so there's that, and then there's the actor Lawson who you used, right? mm-hmm. who you, who's doing the until until until, and That's then right. there's Ben Vereen echoed, and then there's Williams, right? right? So you have those layers operating as well. That's right. Um, yeah. And then I guess the, the, the other thing too, that that's fascinating to me is the ways in which you, you reflect the multiple audiences of these different
0: periods too. Yeah. You know, I was, um, I was, we were still working on the show. We were still working on the script. I don't think that we had actually started our first set of rehearsals, but, um, I was invited to, uh. Long Beach Community College to do a presentation, and towards the end, you know, I'd, I'd explain. I'd, I told them I was working on this thing. I didn't know how it was going to turn out. I was feeling pretty anxious about it. And then I said to them, just kind of spontaneously, I actually had the full ten minute performance. Would you like to watch it? And enthusiastically, they were like, "Yes, yes, yes! We want to see. We want to see it." So you know, I put it on for them, and it was the first time that I had the experience of watching it with a big group. It was probably like seventy five people. In uh, maybe a little more so I could sit there watching them watching it. You know, I'm looking out of the corner of my eyes, you know, and it was at that point where it dawned on me when this woman who was sitting next to me, is like crying and you know, she's like wiping tears from her that it read that the show really was about the audience itself. It was about being seen and then who's looking, um, so when I was driving home, it's kind of dawned on me. And I sit in my driveway and I just kind of sketch this all out. You know, it's about the audience. It's about the audience. Um, and then that's when I realized, like, formally that somehow I had to figure out how to get the audience to transition from being a viewer to being a, a participant. Because they really, they, they were the reason why we were writing this play in the first place.
1: Right, right. right.
0: But those audiences,
1: um, I, I sort of go back to the metaphor of the of that pile of clothes on the freeway, right? Mm. That somebody was once wearing, mm. right? That those audiences themselves have echoes in them. It's the same that we were talking about in the Library of Black Lies too, of who we are at a given moment, how we see. How time ch- changes, how the echo of that of who we were yeah. and what we're about, and those are, that that present is right. I mean that that's there, right? As we think about the levels of audiences and yeah. that recurring, almost haunting, eerie image of Ronald and Nancy Reagan applauding.
0: <laughs> well, that, freaks you know, me out. It it is. Um, it indicts us all. Um, exactly. You know, like I'm, I'm in this hipster cafe just before I came here in Highland park, you know, eating this overpriced eggs and toast. And, you know, clearly the neighborhood is gentrified, but it's gentrifying and I'm patronizing this place. So am I part of the problem? Most certainly. Um, Am, to what degree do I have autonomy to do anything about it is the question, right? Um, what am I capable of doing? What am I willing to do? Um, so now being a little older, you know, I'm 45 this year, you know, you you learn you have to choose your battles, you know, like where are the places where I can be? truly impactful and where are the places where I can be just sort of symbolically. So, um, and I think, I think that's for many of us, you know, today, we're trying to figure, to figure that out. Um, what are we willing to sacrifice, um, to deal with the administration that we have, right? So, you know, having this play, you know, that, that deals with the legacy of Ronald Reagan who, in, in many ways, produced the conditions for Donald Trump to become the man that we know today? Um,
1: and by the way, they, it, maybe the, the people listening would like to know that you you there was a performance of until 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 on on in Los Angeles on the, the, the on the
0: inauguration. Oh, on Donald, inauguration, yeah, we screened it um, at LACMA as a kind of an anti oh, uh-huh. inaugural, I see. um event. That was just the, the film screening. But we, we performed uh-huh. it here live uh, in, in, on June 1st. Tw- 2015. 2017 in LA. Oh, 2017. We just LA. recently did a live event, which yeah. Ben Vereen came and saw uh, for the first time. Wow. And the surreal thing is that he brought Liza Minnelli wow. with him. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. <laughs> the two of them sit in the front row. I'm like, oh man! I hope he likes this because if he doesn't, I'm going to be humiliated <laughs> in front of all my friends. <laughs> was it? Um, and, and did did he feel
1: uh, that? I'm reluctant, and um, I mean to use the word uh, redemptive um, because I don't think that's a that's a, an accurate way to talk about this the the depth of this work. But mm-hmm. was it on some level redemptive for him that you told a story that somebody else had to tell he
0: couldn't. He, he appreciates it and, you know, having done the piece in New York, you know, and like winning the, went in the top prize in the festival and, you know, the, the amount of press that we've gotten, you know, at this point, I feel, I felt pretty good by the, you know, him seeing it for the first time two years later, that it was a good piece that I, that he would, at least he would be able to recognize that, you know, that what we did was, um passable is good theater, (laughs) I guess. So, you know, when he saw, when he sat in the audience um, that night, you know, I was watching him watching it. And um, at the end, you know, we did a talk back and, you know, and I told him before, I said, look, you know, I'm going to say a few things. Don't feel obligated to say anything, you know. Um, And spontaneously, you know, he stood up and he made this incredible speech about what he was trying to do and how grateful he was that we had done this um for him and uh the next that night he called me and uh he came and he worked with us on some of the scenes and some of the dancing on sunday afternoon Mm -hmm. which was (laughs) surreal oh my god Mm -hmm. it was crazy um that's a that's a whole other new that's a whole other video piece for the future.
1: Well, it is a, it's a kind of theater of cruelty, I must say, and it and it does wake up. But at the same time, there is something um, there is some piece of it that feels right. I don't know if one would go so far as to say, you know, the it's an illustration of that the arc of the moral universe bends toward justice. But in a way, it <laughs> it, it, it 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 takes us. It, there's something that feels redemptive, or that you've moved something forward. Even as we acknowledge all the echoes and and not to get, not to put sugar crystals on it, but to just allow it, you know, allow it to be, but it does.
0: Well, you know, redemption is not a destination, right? It's a, um, it's a process that happens over time. And, you know, the more we tell the story, the more people know about it, um, then, you know, uh, uh, ideally, you know, there'll be some direct impact upon him. But, you know... I'm trying to tell the story in a way in which will excite people also about the way in which it's being told. That there's some strategies in there and some techniques that we're using Clearly. that I hope that um, that people will try out themselves. You know, and be like, right. hey, you know, that's a that's an interesting way of trying to deal with history, right? And I think that's the point. I mean, that that it, it, if it were just about
1: him. Then you could maybe say it was redundant. So there is that element, but it's about right. so many other things, and it's about so much about who we are and who That's we are right. as a culture and what our history is, and and all. Yeah, again, the yeah. shadows, the echoes, the t- the the passage of time. It seems to me that your work, um, to a certain extent, is, um, uh, in, you know, in that in that kind of troubling way, al- allowing us to maybe get to think about ourselves in a different way perceive ourselves understand our ever-changing self in time Our ever-changing culture and time are the ways in which we move in and out of easy and difficult spaces all of that to you know deepen the soul increase our compassion maybe open up the possibility for us to move toward that
0: one of the things that i got out of being at art center um and also with the stuff I was doing outside of school was to become like a, like a really good synthetic thinker, you know, to think across scales,
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: you know, from, you know, uh, complex ideas to practical on the ground applications, right. Right. Um, you know, being able to think of an idea and then actually be able to build it. Right. If if
1: I can interrupt for a second, that it it just anticipates the next question I have for you. And that is, you know, there is um, a way in which um, the kind of, uh, you know, the deep end, do the project kind of work that we have here. It has uh, sparked for me this kind of fascination with the creative process that lets us know in a unique kind of way only through the making process Mm -hmm. that we you know we may yeah. have a sense of vision but sometimes we just execute against that vision but often in my experience and time we are actually we, we we know it as we make it yeah. and it's yep. the surprise it's yep. the discovery along yep. the way yep. and and I, I if that's a if that could be a prompt for you to kind of riff on that for a while i'd be i'd be interested <laughs> yeah, uh, especially yeah yeah' no, as that's, an art that's, center alum
0: that's great um so, you know, I had, I had one professor um, scribe it to me. It's like, uh, oh, God, it just actually, the it just flew out. Of, it, you're, it's sculpting itself out through time, right? So from a, a more philosophical standpoint, you could say, when you're making something, you know that you're really in the creative space when you're having a conversation with the thing, mm-hmm. right? Like it's telling you what it wants to be. Exactly. It can, sometimes that could be in absolute defiance of what you want And then when it stops working out and you're like, well, why isn't this happening? Oftentimes you, then you have to take a step back and be like, Oh, because it's, ha- it works better if I do it this way. And maybe that's better than where I was trying to take it. Right. So in my process of designing an exhibition, you know, what I, what I, what I try to do as a strategy is to think about what qualities and characteristics the show wants to be. Right. So like, does it want to be, you know, full of contrast? Does it, does it want to have levels of transparency? Should there be staccato? Should there be, you know, great variances in scale? Should things be broken up and scattered or should they be like one sequential experience? Um, so when you start to think about it in that way, then it frees you up as to what that materially can be. So ideally, once you start thinking about the qualities, then this material manifestation will emerge from that, that process. Um, and from that activity, ideally, it'll start to take on some geometry. It will take on some shape, some points of... Similarity in some points of contrast, but it evolves, and it is known to you only through through time. So you know you you it's all anxiety filled time. If you have a deadline, it's full of anxiety, but it is time, and it's also openness. Right, so you're looking, you're searching, and then you have to just like reflect you have to meditate on it and or just, just let your or or as you were saying earlier it's almost as if you need to listen well right that is kind of that is kind of true yeah. so you know so on on to go back to the earlier point about having that base of support that network of peers and supporters and and critics you know people who are going to be critical of what you're doing you rely on them right but then also you have to let yourself like you say let time and patience Start to to make things happen um, because you know, like the subconscious mind is so rich that sometimes we get in the way of it. Right, right. So, you, so you have to figure out how to allow ideas that may not necessarily make sense in their initial popping out to take on some shape. You know, it was James Baldwin. He was talking about the process of being a writer. He said, you know, if, he said he described it as like having a toothache. He said, you know, when, you're, when your tooth is hurting, you know, your body is saying, if you keep ignoring this pain, I'm going to kill you. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So he said the, the process of writing is reminiscent of that is that sometimes you get to these points where they become very sensitive and painful. And he said you shouldn't run away from that. You should actually rush right towards it. 'Cause that often that oftentimes is the space of the new. It's the thing which sits outside of your own good taste and form and you find it alien to yourself. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes that's the wall that you need to break through, if that's the mm-hmm. the proper metaphor. But you need to you need to get in touch with it and then over time that becomes your new condition it that becomes just becomes work. True. Yeah. it becomes a work but it also becomes like your new standard and then you got to break you have to move that behind beyond that right. to the next right
1: and it's this. um it, it echoes what we were talking about before it's a way of making the invisible visible
0: part of the reason why i am interested in 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 history and the way in which it echoes itself through time is because it does allow for you to dislodge certain things that are in our subconscious, that it gives it gives it some physical language to, to manifest itself in the present. Right. So, you know, when we, when we were, my, my co-writer, Kurt Foreman, is also a graduate from here in the, in the grad school. Um, we became friends here at Art Center. He um, and I, you know, have been talking about this for years, but, you know, it was like when, when the past comes into the present, what is it doing here now? Right. Like, is this, you know, there's a million, billion things that could manifest themselves in the present. But why this thing and why is it resonating at this moment? So, you know, the way in which we decided to take that on was not to tell the story of Ben Vereen's performance from the perspective of, of a historical reenactment, but to tell it from from the perspective of how he remembers it, which is a series of traumas. Right. Because you know that old saying, you know, everyone and everything in my dreams is me. Right. So, you know, yeah, real Ronnie, real George Bush. But after 30 years of recycling that in your head, they become vessels of your own fears, your own anxieties, your own hopes. Um. And he's still living with it every day right now. Though I do believe that
1: if we um, open to questions, if we understand how to dance with this kind of music of time and memory. If we can ask great questions, if we can listen to what our body tells us when we have a toothache or what a dream tells us or what we're compelled to make or what our characters need to say, then I think there's a, I actually believe there's a healing in that. Um, And that there's a, that that kind of creative process opens us up to change and moving somewhat that's true. Into a...
0: and, it, and it also makes you feel less alone right. if you know that somebody else right. has gone through this and come out better on the other side. Mm-hmm. Or that you're better off on the other side than they were. Right. So, yeah, there is a healing there. But I also think that like the scar or the wound becomes smaller if you become bigger.
1: Right. Right. But the but the project isn't that the wound disappears. The project is, is that we <laughs> Yeah, we see, we, the, see we, you we see it. We see it. We see it, we get it. We somehow learn to accommodate, accept, hold yeah. it without yeah. it just being a toothache anymore. Yeah, yeah. to mix all
0: the metaphors here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I was I was a student here, I was like so lonely. I was like the nerdiest. I, maybe I wasn't as unattractive as I imagined I was then, but um, I could not, you know, buy a girlfriend on campus. Um, But, you know, thinking about like when you're uh, like in high school or even younger and like you know you like the girl that you like is like really into that dude that's all like rough and beat up and it's like why are you into that dead-eyed fool like he's like he's the worst you know it's like somehow they're attracted to the person with all the damage yeah you know so yeah. you know i mean clearly well reclamation reclamation projects are huge for romantic love you know? i know you yeah, know they make yeah. for great characters and books and in plays but like in real life you know it's like do you really want to spend time like look at me you know like i'm, I'm a decent human being you know well you you are um, indeed,
1: and I can't thank you enough for this conversation. <laughs> really, thank you. It was really wonderful to have yeah. this. Well, you know.
0: thanks for having me. This is a this is a great series, and I'll just close the conversation by saying the room that we're in. When I was a student here, it was my job to actually paint this room. This oh, was wow. a student gallery for the MFAs, and that oh, was really? my, that was my wow. work study job. Was painting this room. I I've hung mini shows and painted the walls. More in this echoes room. and shadows. <laughs> That's yeah. so crazy. When I walked <laughs> in, I was like, "Oh my god, this is so funny."
1: Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Change Lab best way to support the show is to share it with your community. And please feel free to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or the Apple Podcasts app. For a deeper dive into the astonishing creativity and innovation coming out of ArtCenter, please visit our website at artcenter.edu. Thanks for listening.